Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. There is one thing that I wanted to share with you, and that is the possibility that all life on Earth could end, or the majority of life on Earth could end. And let me give you two data points here. The first is from the journal Scientific Reports. It was reported in Science Daily. New research reveals the extinction of plant or animal species from extreme environmental change increases the risk of an extinction domino effect that could annihilate all life on Earth, they write. Researchers from Italy and Australia simulated, this was all done on a computer, right? simulated 2,000 virtual Earths linking together animal and plant species. And then using sophisticated modeling, they subjected these virtual Earths to environmental changes. In other words, they, they turned up the heat. They did global warming by computer. And what they found was, and I quote from their study, in the case of global warming in particular, the combination of intolerance to heat combined with co-extinctions means that five to six degrees of average warming globally is enough to wipe out most life on the planet. You will recall that there's a broad scientific consensus that if we do not do something in the next 10 or 20 years, by the year 2100, which will be in the lifetime of my grandson, in all probability, by the year 2100, everything will be dead. Everything larger than a cockroach or maybe a rat. This is what happened at the end Permian uh, 250 million years ago, 254 million years ago, and it was appears to be a, a methane burp toward the end as the planet gradually warmed as a result of uh, volcanic activity in, the, in what is now Siberia. It's called the Siberian Traps. And then it reached the point where the oceans had warmed up enough, and it, it appears that that was around five or six degrees Celsius, that they released enormous amounts of methane, and boom, it went to around eight or nine degrees Celsius of warming and killed everything. The oceans were, were sterilized, land was sterilized, and you just, you know, basically, uh, you know, pretty much more than 90%, 95% of all life on Earth vanished. So we have already warmed in some parts of the world two degrees, 1.2 degrees globally. In tropical areas, it's close to two degrees. In the Arctic, it's close to five. And so this story by Brooke Jarvis that was in the New York Times Magazine titled The Insect Apocalypse is here. And I just wanted to run through some of the data in this. It starts out with the story of Sunny Boy Reese, uh, who is a, uh, an amateur entomologist, an am amateur scientist in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. 
and he was out on a bike ride with his son, and he thought, well, this is weird. It used to be when I'd ride the bike, I'd get all kinds of bugs in my face, and now there's no bugs. And so he began some research that we'll get into in just a second. Brooke Jarvis notes in the article, in the United States, scientists recently found the population of monarch butterflies fell by 90% in the last 20 years, a loss of 900 million individuals. The rusty patch bumblebee, which once lived in 28 states, dropped by 87% over the same period, which raises a deeper worry that the whole insect world may be quietly going missing, a loss of abundance that could alter the planet in unknowable ways. A German study found that measured simply by weight, the overall abundance of flying insects in German nature preserves had decreased by 75% just the last 27 years. If you looked at midsummer peak population peaks, the drop was 82%. Those of you who are longtime listeners to this program will recall back I don't know, six, eight, nine years ago, something like that, a trucker called in and said, I literally drive from California to Massachusetts several times a year and, and have been doing so for 20 or 30 years. And I can tell you, it used to be I used to have to stop and clean the bugs off my windshield pretty much at every truck stop. And now I can go halfway across the United States and not have to take the bugs off my windshield. Fishermen, in the decades of photos of fishermen holding up their catch in the Florida Keys, the marine biologist Lauren McClanish found a perfect illustration of this phenomena, which is that you don't notice these changes because every generation is born in a different world. Um, it's called the shifting baseline syndrome. The fish got smaller and smaller to the point where the prize catches of today were dwarfed by fish in years past that were piled up and ignored, but the smiles on the fishermen's faces stayed the same size. They didn't realize that they were actually documenting a mass die-off. In Britain, there's some really good uh, studies, bees, moths, butterflies, and beetles. Uh, 30 to 60% of species were found to have diminished ranges. People who studied fish found that fish had fewer mayflies to eat. Ornithologists kept finding that birds that rely on insects for food were in trouble. Eight of 10 partridges gone from French farmlands. 50 and 80% drops respectively for nightingales and turtle doves. These are birds that eat insects. Half of all farmland birds in Europe disappeared in just three decades. The birds might simply be starving. In Denmark, rollers, little eels, little owls, Eurasian hobbies, and bee eaters, these are all birds that live on insects, larger insects like beetles and dragonflies. They have abruptly disappeared. They're gone. Then came the German study. The numbers were stark, indicating a vast impoverishment of an entire insect universe, even in protected areas where insects ought to be under less stress. The speed and scale of the drop were shocking, even to entomologists who were already anxious about bees or fireflies or the cleanliness of windshields. So the German study was done in Krefeld. It's an hour drive outside of Dusseldorf. It's an extraordinary long-term, long-range, deep-dive study. In 2013, Krefeld etymologists confirmed that the total number of insects caught in one nature reserve was nearly 80% lower than the same spot in 1989. They had sampled other sites, analyzed old data sets, and found similar declines where 30 years earlier they often needed a liter bottle for a week of bug trapping. Now a half liter bottle usually sufficed. The final study looked at 63 nature preserves representing 17,000 sampling days and found consistent declines in every kind of habitat they sampled. From their study, quote, the flying insect community as a whole has been decimated over the last few decades. Journalist J.B. McKinnon cites records from recent centuries now, going back just 100 years, 150, 200 years at the most, right? In the North Atlantic, these from the reports of the day, right, from 200 years ago. In the North Atlantic, a school of cod stalls a tall ship in mid-ocean. In the middle of the Atlantic. 
Off Sydney, Australia, a ship's captain sails from noon until sunset through pods of sperm whales as far as the eye can see. Pacific pioneers complained to the authorities that splashing salmon threatened to swamp their canoes. I remember reading Lewis and Clark's notes to Jefferson. The salmon were so abundant when they ran that it, that it seemed as if you could walk across the Columbia River. We are talking about things seen by human eyes recalled in human memories. Flocks of birds that took three days to fly overhead, as many as 100 blue whales in the Southern Ocean for every one that's there now. Back to today. The world's largest king penguin colony shrank by 88% over 35 years. More than 97% of the bluefish tuna who once lived in our oceans are gone. 2013 paper in Nature said that a loss of even 30% of a species' abundance can be so destabilizing that other species start going fully numerically extinct. In fact, 80% of the time, when you notice an extinction, it's the secondary creature. In other words, the, the bug population declines by 30, 40, 50%, and that causes the insect eater birds to starve. And so they go extinct before the bugs are extinct. This is called defaunation, the loss of individuals, the loss of abundance. Since 1970, Earth's various populations of land animals have lost on average 60% of their members. A study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that if you looked at the world's mammals by weight, 90% of that biomass is humans and livestock, just 4% is wild animals. Scott Hoffman Black, entomologist, says, we worry about saving the grizzly bear, but where is the grizzly without the bee that pollinates the berries it eats or the flies that sustain baby salmon? Where, for that matter, are we? When asked to imagine what would happen if insects were to disappear completely, scientists find words like collapse and Armageddon. The National Academy of Sciences did a study in Puerto Rico. They found over a 40-year period 10 to 60 times less arthropod biomass, less, less insect biomass, 60 times less, not 60% less. In other words, they were catching 473 milligrams of bugs, now they're catching just eight milligrams in a particular net in a particular way. Even scarier was this is, this is now produced in Puerto Rico. Serious declines in the number of lizards, birds, and frogs. The paper reported, quote, a bottom-up trophic cascade and consequent collapse of the forest food web. Now, why is this? Why is this insect apocalypse happening? The guy who ran this study, his name is Dr. Lister, he says, uh, Lister chalks up their decline to climate change, which has already increased temperatures in, in this part of Puerto Rico by two degrees Celsius since he first sampled there 30 years ago. Previous research suggested that tropical bugs will be unusually sensitive to, to temperature change. In November, scientists who subjected laboratory beetles to a heat wave reported that the increased temperatures made them significantly less fertile. We are looking out on a world that we are killing, and we are killing it with fossil fuels. And the European Union member states, they banned neonicotinoid pesticides, thinking that that was what was killing off the insects in Europe. They banned a number of the pesticides that we routinely use here in the United States. They started paying farmers to keep their fields fallow, to provide insect habitats, put wild edges alongside cultivation. But the study writes, insect populations dropped anyway. So it's not the pesticides, it's not the urbanization, it's climate change. It is right now starting to kill the planet. We, we need to be raising the alarm and doing so loudly. We all want to find the perfect unicorn gift to give at the holiday gift exchange or to family and friends that'll really stand out, right? I have one that will be the talk of the office, a hit with friends and family, and will actually be useful. 
Tiger Lady. Tiger Lady's been featured in Runner's World Gift Guide two years now. You may know Tiger Lady as the revolutionary self-defense tool based on a cat's retractable claws. When you make a fist, three claws come out like a real-life wolverine. It's lightweight and designed to collect DNA. Tiger Lady doesn't require training, and it's legal in all 50 states. It's recommended by police and self-defense instructors, making it the perfect stocking stuffer for anyone on your list. Tiger Lady will make your loved ones feel aware and confident when they walk alone. Order by December 14th for free shipping and time for Christmas. Go to TigerLady.com or use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, for a 25% savings and to receive a free whistle LED flashlight keychain while supplies last. Give the gift of safety this year by giving Tiger Lady. Remember, use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, and go to TigerLady.com. That's TigerLady.com. On the line with us, our old friend, Dr. Michael Mann, the Distinguished Professor of Meteorology and Director of the Earth Systems Science Center at Penn State University, author of several books, including The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. He's the inventor of the hockey stick, that giant lurch up in carbon dioxide that made Al Gore famous. This is the guy who actually invented the concept. You can tweet him at Michael E. Mann, his website, Michael Mann, with two N's. M-A-N-N dot -N net. Dr. Mann, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. Always good to be with you. So the uh, IPCC, in response to a query, this wasn't their normal five-year report. This was in response to an inquiry from some of these island nations that are looking at the possibility of extinction, essentially, you know, vanishing under the yeah. waters. Ask them, you know, is this goal of keeping temperatures below two degrees Celsius? Originally two degrees Celsius, and, and this they're looking at an even lower target here, right, of 1.5 right. Right. So they said, what would the consequences be if we lowered the goal? And this whole new bunch of research in the last couple of years came out, and it's kind of head exploding. Summarize it for us, please. Sure. Well, there are a lot of reasons to believe that two degrees Celsius warming of the planet is a whole lot worse than one and a half degrees Celsius, which is a whole lot worse than the one degree Celsius we've already warmed. And the issue here really has to do, for example, with how close are we to the collapse of substantial parts of the major ice sheets, the West Antarctic ice sheet, the Greenland ice sheet. If those ice sheets continue to lose ice, as they have been doing, then it may be indeed too late for many of these low-lying island nations. The amount of sea level rise that we'll see over the next several decades will literally submerge some of these islands. So they have reason to be worried about any additional warming. And whereas two degrees Celsius warming is the target that has largely been adopted in these discussions for defining dangerous interference with the climate, for these low-lying island nations, you know, one and a half degrees Celsius is catastrophic. For many of the regions that are suffering unprecedented droughts and heat waves and wildfires, we've already warmed a dangerous amount. And so it's really a question of how far down this dangerous highway are we willing to go? Yeah. And how far are we willing to go, apparently? Well, in the absence of any, you know, mitigation, you know, if we pursue business as usual, burning of fossil fuels and warm the planet by four to five Celsius at seven and nine Fahrenheit by the end of the century, then we will see a truly devastating climate change impacts. The summer, the devastating summer of 2018 
with the wildfires and floods and the superstorms we've seen this fall. Most recently, my namesake, Michael, the strongest storm ever to landfall the U.S. coastline late in the season. You know, that will be par for the course, and we'll see far more devastating extreme weather events, hurricanes, massive sea level rise and flooding. That's a world that we certainly don't want to live in. We don't want our children and grandchildren to live in. If we curtail our burning of fossil fuels dramatically in the years ahead, we can still avoid warming the planet more than two degrees Celsius, and we certainly don't want to warm it any more than that. The Paris Agreement basically gets us halfway from that four to five Celsius, seven to nine Fahrenheit warming down to the two degree Celsius warming that pretty much everybody agrees we want to keep warming below. The Paris Agreement commitments get us about halfway there. That means we still have work to do. Well, this report is essentially calling for a massive reduction within the next 10 to 12 years. Can you give us the specifics that they're calling for in terms of reductions? And having established that it'll be a disaster if we don't do this, I mean, we've got several Republicans now who have come out, literally have made fun of it. I mean, three Republican members of Congress, one of them made the comment, it would take all the money in the world to do this, which is BS. You know, another made a similar comment. What specifically are they saying we have to do and we have to start doing right now? Yeah, and of course, it is a disingenuous talking point to say it will cost us dearly to act, because the reality is it will cost us dearly to not act. <laughs> well, and it already is. I mean, look at Hurricane Michael. Yeah, absolutely. And the devastating extreme weather events and the wildfires and droughts and floods that we've seen this summer. Already, the cost of inaction is so much greater than the cost of actually taking action. And so that is a disingenuous talking point, and, and it's predictable. The forces of denial are out in force trying to distract the public and policymakers in the wake of this devastating new IPCC report. And here's the irony, Tom. This report is overly conservative, as the IPCC reports always are. And in terms of the budget of carbon, how much carbon do we have left that we can burn and still avoid warming the planet more than that dangerous two degrees Celsius warming? We have argued that the number that the IPCC is using is probably a factor of two too large. And mm. in part because what it gets into some of the details here, the way they measure how much the planet has warmed, obviously you need to define what the baseline is. What is the pre-industrial baseline? Now they use the late 1800s to define the pre-industrial baseline, but the globe had already warmed several tenths of a degree Celsius in response to greenhouse gas emissions that occurred before the late 19th century. So if you use a more realistic definition of what was the pre-industrial climate, we're actually even closer to two degrees Celsius, and we have even less carbon that we can afford to burn. So what do the numbers say? We've got to bring our carbon emissions down by between five and 10% a year over the next two decades and basically bring them down to zero if we're going to avoid warming the planet more than that dangerous two degrees Celsius warming. Right. And this, by the way, would create millions of jobs. I mean, it would be an explosion for the clean energy industry, you know, rebuilding our power grids, solarizing every house in the world. It would be such an incredible economic opportunity. But the fossil fuel barons would take a hit. The billionaires, the Koch brothers, the stockholders of ExxonMobil and whatnot, they would all take a hit. And, you know, therefore, they're fighting it tooth and nail. It's just absolutely bizarre. Yeah, the great lie has been that we can't make this transition, it'll hurt the economy, when in fact the rest of the world has moved on. The rest of the world is moving on. They recognize that the future of the global economy is in renewable energy. And the more we continue 
to remain fixated on fossil fuels, the farther we as a nation fall behind the rest of the world. And you're right. You know, there's some coal barons and fossil fuel companies that stand to profit the longer we stay addicted to fossil fuels. But the rest of us and the planet lose out. All right. Let's talk for a moment about the actual impacts of this. You know, I have been accused of having my hair on fire around these issues in the past, particularly when I talk about mass extinctions, you know, revisiting the Permian. But let's talk about just, you know, kind of a middle point here, civilization. We're, we have already seen, I believe, as a consequence of global warming, and please reality check me on this, we've seen the desert move south. I believe it's over 100 miles in the last two decades in the northern part of Africa and the Middle East. And the consequence of that was farmers being wiped out, moving into the big cities, yep. big cities then becoming unstable in countries like Syria, Libya, Egypt, and so forth and leading to what was referred to as the Arab Spring. Apparently, it was provoked by climate change. Then you've got all these refugees flowing into Europe at a rate that is difficult for the Europeans to assimilate, which is producing a right-wing backlash. So now we've had several governments in Europe, Poland, Hungary, Italy, maybe on the edge of this, basically flipping from democracy to strongman autocracy, rejecting democracy. And then in other parts of the world, Bangladesh, parts of northern India, we're seeing, you know, just massive movements of people, millions and millions of people moving as a consequence of climate change. So clearly, A, it's already destructive to democracy, this fragile form of governance that we've kind of evolved over the last couple hundred years. And B, tell me if you agree with everything I just said, and then if so, B, at what point do we say this actually endangers civilization? Yeah. Well, you know, these uh, granola-chewing radicals known as the Pentagon and four-star generals, our national security community, they are firmly on record in terms of the threat that they see in climate change. They describe it as a threat multiplier. It takes existing competition for diminishing resources, and it increases that competition, and it creates conflict. And you can connect the dots between this epic drought in Syria and the terrorist organization ISIS that arose in that atmosphere of conflict and instability. So even if you dismiss climate change for all the other reasons, if you're a national security hawk, you ought to care about climate change because it is our greatest national security threat. And our armed forces understand that. And our national security community understands that. The Pentagon understands that. Many of our business leaders understand that as well because they lose out in an unstable world economy. So, you know, it used to be the case that climate change was sort of thought of as an issue that only the environmental left cares about or should care about. But it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. The impacts of climate change are already very real. They're hurting all of us, and we should all care regardless of our politics. Yeah, this is, this is serious stuff. This is very serious stuff and we need to treat it as such. Dr. Michael Mann, his latest book, The Madhouse Effect. What was the title of your book about the hockey stick? Uh, the Hockey Stick and the Climate War. The Hockey Stick and the Climate War. That was absolutely brilliant. Dr. Michael Mann, michaelmann.net. Thank you so much for being with us, sir. Thank you, Tom, always a pleasure. Great talking with you. This is a, an absolutely fascinating story. We were talking about the climate uh, with Michael Mann. I want to step off from that because I think that the insect apocalypse, the sixth extinction that we are now in the early stages of, which is leading to the destruction of, you know, in many cases, actually civilization. I mean, look at Syria right now. Look at Libya right now. Look at Guatemala right now. 
what's at the core of all this stuff, what's underneath all this stuff is greed, just good old fashioned greed. And in order to sustain that greed, what we have is people with great wealth, people like Donald Trump, using race to get average working people all worked up. So I want to talk about a couple of different things here. I want to talk about why is it that greed happens, particularly among people who have more money than they know what to do with, and how race is used in this country in that context, and then how that fits into this whole issue of climate change and all this kind of stuff. So the very, very wealthy plutocrats who run America have decided that using race and using immigration as a stand-in for race is the most powerful political weapon they can wield because they don't have anything else. They're not telling Americans, we're gonna make your life better. They're not telling Americans, we're gonna raise your wages. They're not telling Americans, we're gonna protect your investments. They're not telling, in fact, they're doing the opposite. They're cutting wages. They're cutting the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They're not telling Americans, we're gonna make your air cleaner. No, they're, they're adding more pollution. Or they're not telling Americans, we're gonna make your water safer. No, they're, they're, you know, they're poisoning our water for profit. They're not telling Americans we're gonna your, your kids are gonna get a better education. No, they're they're cutting funds funding for education. They're not telling Americans your your college students are are gonna do better and, and free. no, it's a, they're raising the price constantly. They're not telling Americans your health care is gonna be taken taken care of. Don't worry. Republicans can't say any of those things because they're not doing any of those things. They're doing the opposite of all those things. So all basically they can do is say, look out for that brown person over there. Oh my god. And then that echoes into agencies like ICE that are, you know, basically uh, racist machines to begin with. I mean, you know, it's, it's just this is what's going on. So I told you I wanted to connect this to great wealth. I, I, this is this is fascinating Then I'm going to connect it to, to climate change and would love to get your thoughts on all this. If you think I'm just, you know, totally off base here or if if this is making sense to you, the French government, you've seen these protests in France, right? Well, it wasn't just about the gasoline tax. I, I, the, people in America, particularly the news media, they love to say it's about the gas tax. Mostly what is driving the protests in France is neoliberalism, is Macron's uh, basically kind of, uh, you know, the, the kind of policies that America lived under from, from 1981 to today, the kind of policies that the, the UK lived under, that's Reagan to today, the, the policies that the UK had from 1978, uh, you know, uh, with Margaret Thatcher to today. And France has imposed these kinds of policies, this austerity. They're cutting back on public benefits. They're, the wa wages have been stagnant. Uh, and Macron, one of the things that he had done that had really pissed people off is he cut the wealth tax. Now, in France, if you're obscenely rich, there's actually a tax that you have to pay on your wealth. And it used to be on everything you had, your investments, your, 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 your homes, everything. And this, this only applied to people who were like fabulously wealthy, right? Well, one of the things Macron did is he reduced that tax. He eliminated the, the wealth tax on investments, saying it was going to stimulate the economy. We've heard this kind of crap before from neoliberals, right? And that's what the people were really upset about. Benjamin Griveaux, a government spokesman, said on Wednesday that the measure could be modified. Um, but, you know, and then it goes into the Gilets Jaunes uh, movement, the, the Yellow Vest movement, uh, has widened to protest failing purchasing power, high taxes, and a feeling that any benefit from reforms is yet to be felt by ordinary people. Sound familiar? Neoliberalism is killing the planet. This is the Tom Hartman Program.
As you probably know, Louise and I are basically vegans who eat fish once a month, but odds are you're not. Omaha Steaks has a really great product for the holidays for, for those of you who eat meat. This is the gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years. Right now, Omaha Steaks has an amazing limited time offer for my listeners. When you go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT and you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now just $49.99. Order now and you'll get four hand-cut tender top sirloin steaks, two safe premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers for free. Omaha Steaks is a fifth generation family owned company with over a hundred years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef hand cut by master butchers in Omaha. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com Enter the code REPORT, R-E-P-O-R-T, REPORT, in the search bar and get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. That's omahasteaks.com, code REPORT. Tom Hartman here with you. And so here we have now, as a consequence of the very, very wealthy seizing control of political power in the United States, specifically the entire Republican Party and a good chunk of the Democratic Party, we are not doing anything about climate change. In fact, the opposite. Emissions are actually up right now over last year. And as a result, life on Earth is starting to die. This from Science Daily. Researchers conducting a five-year-long study examining snow cover in the northern hardwood region found that projected changes in climate could lead to a 95% reduction of deep insulating snowpack in forest areas across the northeastern United States by the end of the century. The loss of snowpack would likely result in a steep reduction in the forest's ability to store climate changing carbon dioxide and filter pollutants from the air and water. Why would that be? Because the trees will die. Basically, the snowpack, you know, the winters are really, really cold in the northeast. I, you know, Louise and I lived for, for five years in New Hampshire and for 10 years in Vermont. It's cold. It's really cold. And if the tree roots deep down were to get frozen, 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 seriously frozen, it would kill the trees. But because there's, you know, two, three feet of snow on the ground, it acts like an insulating blanket and keeps the deep soil from freezing. And it looks like global warming is making a change to this. In global change biology, according to scientists who leveraged six decades of data showing declining winter snowpack at Hubbard Brooks Forest, 7,800-acre research forest in New Hampshire, heavily populated by sugar maple and yellow birch, has been used for over 60 years to study changes in northern hardwood forests, an ecosystem covering 54 million acres and stretching from Minnesota to southeastern Canada. And he says, we know global warming is now causing the winter snowpack to develop later and melt earlier. They found that growth declined by more than 40% in response to snow removal and increased soil freezing. The trees also were unable to rebound even after snowpack removal ceased. So grim news, very grim news. Meanwhile, down in Florida, irked by the debate and concern that the news media wasn't doing enough to cover what she was seeing on the beach, Ms. Gill, they're gonna to have to find out for themselves when they can't sell their home is the headline. Ms. Gill, whose father was a producer for CBS News, started shooting videos in her iPhone during her morning walks. Uh, this was by the Naples Pier. In, in the video, Ms. Gill zoomed in on a six-foot-long, stiff, glistening dolphin carcass, its mouth frozen in a toothy smile. The creature was one of more than 20 dead bottlenose dolphins that had washed up on local beaches and 
recent days. This is the seventh one in 24 hours, she says through tears in the video. When is this going to stop? The video went viral, thus the New York Times doing a story about her. And they write, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration declared that 42 dolphins had died in the previous 10 days and a new emergency was breaking out. Seabirds, including sandwich terns and common terns, were dropping out of the sky, dying by the hundreds. She added she had never seen anything like it in the 25 years. This is Joan Fitzgerald, veterinarian at the ARCS Wildlife Hospital and Conservancy of Southwest Florida. She says, I've never seen anything like this in the 25 years that I've been working here. We're hitting a an inflection point. We're hitting a hockey stick. We're hitting a tipping point. And it's starting to become really obvious. David in Safety Harbor, Florida. Hey, David, thanks for listening to 88.5. What's up? Hi, Tom. I was calling to add points to those trying to acquire more wealth. Uh, just to add to that, I, from my perspective, I feel that some, not all, but some try to acquire more wealth, more power, because it's based on an addiction. They keep trying to acquire more, never is it enough, and they'll do so disregarding the effects on others, friends, and, you know, like an addiction, an uh, opioid person will keep stealing from their friends and family and harm them, uh, disregarding those effects just because they need more and more. Uh, so I feel sometimes wealth and power to some is an addiction. You're absolutely right, David. And in fact, the, the article points out, it doesn't, it doesn't get into that neurochemistry part of it, but there have been other articles that have, that it's not so much an opiate addiction because, you know, we have opiate receptors in our bodies that dull pain. It's more of a cocaine addiction. What cocaine does okay. is it jacks up dopamine levels in your body, which is the feel-good hormone. And similarly, in the article, they talked about how these guys, he was doing one research project with hedge fund managers in New York City. And during the day, they would be you know, betting on stocks. And when they had a bet that went well, they'd get this incredible rush, you know, this high, this right. dopamine high. When the bet went sure. poorly, they'd go down. And he also talks about how after the trading day was done, they'd sit around and play competitive poker. They were just junkies to that. To, you know, right. they, they were like gambling addicts, essentially, except that it was legal and they were making hundreds of millions of dollars on it. But I agree with yeah. you, and I think that a lot of these people, you know, had the Koch brothers not been born with a daddy who into a family that was already worth an enormous amount of money, you know, had Donald Trump not been born into a family that was all, already worth a lot of money, they would probably be living in an apartment in, you know, in one of the suburbs of New York City with newspapers from the floor to ceiling and empty tin cans and all kinds of empty Coke bottles and milk bottles. And, and uh, you know, you'd see them on the Hoarders show on TV. It's the exact same thing. So, well, I appreciate it, Tom. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot, Dave. I, dude, I, I, spot on. I totally agree with what you're saying here. We're talking about the ultra-rich and how they're maintaining their riches and their political power and their position with basically racism, you know, uh, turning, turning Americans against each other. And all around the world, we see this happening. You see this happening in Hungary. You see this happening in Poland right now. It's happening all over the world. And Joe Pinsker wrote a brilliant piece for The Atlantic, and it's titled, The Reason Many Ultra-Rich People Aren't Satisfied With Their Wealth. And it's based on a study that was done by Michael Norton, a Harvard Business School professor, who has spent years and years getting to know and studying, closely studying, hundreds of people who are worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to figure out what motivates them, what drives them. The core question is, why would somebody who has 10 million, 50 million, $100 million, $1,000 million, $1 billion, $20 billion, the Koch brothers, $80 billion. Why would somebody with that much money, you can't possibly spend that much money in a lifetime. Even if you want to send a rocket ship to the moon, you can't spend that much money in a lifetime. Why would somebody with that much money work so hard to get more? 
particularly when we know that the social impact of money accumulating at the top is a negative impact. It, it, it damages people on the bottom, actually. There, it, it, to a certain extent, this is a zero-sum game. And what they found is that all of us, all of us humans, basically compare ourselves with others. We ask two questions. Am I doing better than I was before? That's kind of a self-referential comparison. And then the second question, am I doing better than other people? And so what happens is somebody's worth a million dollars and they double or triple their worth. Now they're worth two or three million. So they move into a nicer house, but the nicer house is in a neighborhood full of people who are worth five million dollars because they're aspirational. You know, they're trying to move up. So then they have to have five. So they get five million dollars and then they get ten million dollars. And now they want to move to a fancier house. So they move into a neighborhood where everybody's worth a hundred million dollars. But they're only worth ten million dollars. Right. But they're in the neighborhood and they're saying, well, now I got to have a hundred million dollars. And this just continuously is happening. And now these billionaires are hanging out with each other. People worth a hundred million dollars. You know, poor Wilbur Ross. He's only worth seven hundred million dollars. Hanging out with people who are worth four five, six billion and saying, you know, I want that. So there's that. In fact, it reminded me of a study. I've, I've told this story before on the air, but um, it's been a while. This was back in the 70s at Michigan State University. There was a study that was reported by WKAR, the local NPR station, MSU Research, that found that squirrels make nests that are a particular size. And you can see them in the winter because the leaves fall. And so they went around and they added 20% more bulk to the squirrel's nests. They added more leaves, you know, just a couple of squirrel's nests, 20% larger. And what they found was within a matter of weeks, all the other squirrels had made their nests larger too. So this is something that's like biological and wired into us. I mean, we can call it greed, we can call it obscene wealth, but there's a piece to it that is human biology and psychology. So frankly, the way to deal with this is through policy, through going back to a top tax rate over 50% on anything over a couple million dollars a year in income. Colin in Kirkland, Washington. Hey, Colin, what's up? Regarding your climate change bumper sticker message, mm -hmm. um, I've got two suggestions for you. Okay. Uh, one would be put carbon back in the ground, not in the air. Brilliant. And the other would be, the other would be make dirt great again, carbon back in. I like it. I like them both. Although, again, they require a basic knowledge of high school chemistry, so I don't think that they're going to have much effect on the Trump voters. Because they don't even understand that it's all about carbon. It's like, you know, stop air pollution or something. I mean, you know, I, how do you break through to people who literally don't know what carbon is or care and who are listening to these lies that are coming out of the petrobillionaires that are repeated on Fox so-called news and on right-wing hate radio? I think we're getting there, Colin. Both your suggestions are brilliant, and I think that they're a giant step forward, but I think we still have a ways to go. Colin, thanks for the call. Craig in Half Moon Bay, California. Hey, Craig, what's on your mind today? I used to work for a federal judge, and I've written law, passed unanimously, national law, for the Mariana Islands. And, and I look at how people struggle with this uh, great progressive wave that we have now. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is our new rock star, confronting this gauntlet that is the Senate, and we feel like we have to wait till 2020. And I say to myself, this is such an easy fix if you just identify the target that you want and then the events to get there. I don't think anybody has ever relied on citizen-formed grand juries to actually pressure Congress. Could it be struck or, down as an abusive judicial process? Uh, 
well, now you now once again you're looking at your local DA and your AG to determine whether or not a grand jury has has, has been formed correctly, has done an uh, investigation correctly, has indicted correctly, has has subpoenaed correctly, right? All of the things that a grand jury could do. I'm saying, suggesting that instead of waiting, that every angle and every aspect to get the job done, and that is to get a Senate that's functional. Mm-hmm. You know, that's no longer a gauntlet. That, that is cooperative. And here's the reason why, and I'll close with this if I might, 10 seconds. Yeah, you got 10 seconds. Thank you. Climate issues are accelerating. I don't think we have 12 years. I said this on posts at your site and other places. That when an ice Arctic happens, we have a game over. We yeah. need to fix this before 2020. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I don't see it happening, but I absolutely agree with the urgency of what we're experiencing. Craig, thank you for the call. And there's stuff that we can individually do, you know, uh, don't drive so much, don't eat meat. But the big stuff has to be done at the level of policy. Ward in Burton, Washington. Yeah. Hey, Ward, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Yeah, on the IPCC report, which so well defines the problem and the solution, stop burning fossil fuels. Yep. Uh, I think it would be interesting to look at the magnitude oh, and on the deal offered by the energy industry. Yes, I definitely think that offer ought to be taken so that we can open up the problem and solve it as an engineering problem. And I don't think it would be good. I don't think we can find them enough to pay for the transition. The transition is going to cost a lot of money in the trillions. But if we don't do that transition, I mean, climate change is costing us trillions right now. Exactly. So we need the cooperation of the energy industry to facilitate the funds necessary to make the transition. And that would be a tax on carbon. Mm-hmm. And I think I have written a paper three pages long that refers to the definition of the problem in the form of a chart put out by the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories, a government lab which shows how much energy is actually lost when you burn carbon fuels. It just goes up the smokestack or it goes right. up the conning tower. Uh, oh, it's, a very, it's a very inefficient way to produce electricity or pretty much anything else. Yeah. and the In, Internal combustion engines actually have gotten far more efficient, but that's about it. Yeah, and the beauty of hydro, wind, and solar energy is there is no loss energy. You're just taking the energy that is available, provided ultimately by the sun, putting it in useful form, and when you use it, liberating it back to the environment. Right. Well, there's not 100% conversion of sunlight to electricity with photovoltaic cells. I mean, I remember 30, 40 years ago, some of them were, you know, between 1% and 7% efficient. I think they're up to around 20% efficiency now. But still, the waste, the sun that hits them, that gets converted into heat, the exact same thing would have happened if it had hit the dirt. It's not polluting the planet. Exactly. You're just taking a portion of what's available, putting it in useful form, using it, and liberating it back into the environment. Right. It's totally natural process. And, and we could be, by the way, we could be helping the developed world right now leapfrog all this stuff. I mean, I got a friend who runs a, an NGO in D.C., and they are all across India and places in Africa and South Asia. They have these little lights with a PV, you know, a, a solar cell uh-huh. on the top. And, right. you know, I mean, they're literally lighting communities that have no electricity whatsoever. 
And this is like yeah. changing yeah. how people live in these rural areas. And yeah. you know, the next step is to come up with one that can conserve enough electricity over a long enough period of time that it can actually be used for cooking. And they're actually developing these things. So Ward, a lot can be done. Ward, thanks a lot for the call. And, and of course, you know, the solar stoves, when I was in South Sudan in that refugee community, they were using some of these solar stoves, which are like giant reflectors, you know, like the old magnifying glass to heat up papers kind of stuff. You're listening to Tom Hartman. When do you want to spot that burglar? When he's casing your home or after he's in? Ask John, whose blink camera alerted him of burglars trying to break in while he and his family were home. Or Shannon, whose Blink camera caught a thief stealing packages. Both times, video clips from Blink were sent to police to help convict the crooks. Blink motion-activated indoor and outdoor cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on two AA batteries that last up to two years. And if you're traveling over the holidays, Blink's live feed option lets you monitor your home and check on your pets from anywhere using the Blink smartphone app. No contracts, no subscriptions, totally affordable, and Blink works with Alexa. Blink camera systems make great holiday gifts, and they're a brilliant way to monitor your holiday package deliveries. Visit BlinkProtect.com holiday. That's BlinkProtect.com holiday. Visit BlinkProtect.com holiday. Once again, BlinkProtect.com holiday. Blink is an Amazon company. Well, Tom Hartman here with you. And there are a lot of other things that are also going on in the world. A court in Holland, in the Netherlands, a Dutch appeals court, this and Reuters ordered the government to cut greenhouse gas emissions faster than planned to ensure that they are at least 25 percent below 1990 levels by the end of 2020. Last year, they were only 13 percent below. The court says the government has done too little. When does that come here? The clean power plan that Barack Obama put into place, Trump taking this, and this is just tailpipe emissions. Just rolling back Obama's clean power program is going to lead to an additional 14,000 premature deaths in the United States every year. It's going to lead to 15,000 new cases of respiratory disease every year. It's going to lead to 140,000 additional childhood asthma attacks every year. And Trump's rollback of fuel, fuel efficiency standards would cost 60,000 jobs. Why 60,000 jobs? because alternative fuels are the fastest growing industry in the United States right now. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, your thoughts? Tom, thank you so much for taking my call. I don't object to amnesty, but they have to be some kind of compensation. They have to give up the profit they made. Raymond Lee James, who was the CEO of ExxonMobil, and he is the longest tenure as ExxonMobil CEO. He was right before Tillerson. When he retired, he walked away with the billion dollars package. Yeah. So they have to they have to give up this money away, and in addition to the climate change, they also oil companies are contributing to terrorism because half of the ISIS in Africa are former farmers who couldn't farm and they picked up a gun and participated in terrorism. Well, and not only that, we're also shipping boatloads of money to Saudi Arabia and have been for over a hundred years, and they're using that money to fund Wahhabism, which is the source That's of ISIS and everything else. Al Qaeda, all of this stuff came out of Wahhabism. Exactly. And a lot of the villagers in some of these African countries, when ExxonMobil comes in, they discover oil. They try to move the villages away from where the oil has been discovered. So these companies have a lot of responsibility. And I do agree that we have lesser time than 12 years. Yeah. And we have to act quickly. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Omar. And spot on. 
We have a major issue here. We're talking about the fate of democracy around the world. We're talking about the fate of civilization itself. And if things get really bad, if the methane in the Arctic gets mobilized, you know, it melts and gets into the atmosphere, we could even be talking about the end of the human race. It could take literally millions of years, hundreds of millions of years for our planet to reboot our, itself and for a new intelligent species, at least at our levels of intelligence, to re-evolve. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. This is the dystopian world that we have, has been brought to us by the fossil fuel billionaires. What do we do about them? Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I've got a suggestion about maybe getting the Americans, uh, you know, the flyover area and mindset to maybe get behind some fuel conservation and green energy and all the stuff that's related to this climate disaster that we are definitely headed towards. I think we're in the middle of it, actually, Eric. Yeah, I would suggest we might be past the middle point, Tom. This recent 12-year report is some of the points it makes, too, in the very near future. Mm. If that's not enough to wake people up, then I just really don't know what else. So I would suggest this. Since those types of Americans seem to be allergic and have an aversion to actual data and scientifically proven through repetition studies, then might we try to persuade them through appealing to what they do care about? And I suggest we sell it to them as a pro-American idea, and here's how we do it. Since most of them don't really acknowledge the South Pole as a cold place, they think South is warm, it's going to hit America before it hits Africa and South America. And you shouldn't want for places like that to have a military, economic, or otherwise strategic advantage, how you don't want those people to have anything, because America gets everything. No, we're all going to have to migrate south. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. I get it, Eric. It's like conflating people's racism and bizarre uh, worldview with climate change. That's an interesting idea. Eric, thank you very much for that. Michael here in Snohomish, Washington. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind? Hi, I'd like people to remember that corn was a tropical grass, and wheat came from the Mediterranean. If it gets too hot in Kansas or Oklahoma to grow these crops, you can't just start growing them up in northern Canada. Right. Because the day length is too short, the angle of the sun coming in, it's not intense enough. You just can't do it. It's not just temperature, it's the day length and Our whole society will dry up because of no food. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is the really scary part. And and I think that we also need to start rapidly making the transition from growing food for animals, which is the majority of our agricultural output in the United States. It's most of what we use our productive land for is food for animals and start producing food for humans, you know, vegetables and fruits across the Midwest and things like that. Michael, uh, well said. Mark in uh, Hopkins, Minnesota. Hey, Mark, what's up? I just wanted to make a comment you talked earlier about the snow cover and what it's doing in terms of trees. Yeah. Well, I, spent, I spent a number of years working for a major agricultural company, and I don't think people understand that it's going to have major changes on us as well because there are a lot of crops that we depend on, like wheat, that depend on that snow cover to protect it from the freeze. And when you don't have that, you're going to have much smaller yields. You're going to have crops that aren't as resistant to insect infestation, so they're going to end up using more pesticides on them. In addition, without that snow cover, 
what you're going to find is you're going to have less insect die-off. So, you, again, you're going to have more of those insects, more pesticides getting used. It's going to be a, a, a cycle that's just going to impact our food supply and the quality of that food. Yeah, and you're talking about winter wheat, right? Isn't that what you plant in the in the fall and then it... That is correct. Yeah, that yeah, is correct. winter wheat. Huh. Amazing. Mark, thank you. Thanks for that data point. I appreciate it. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. I had a climate change question as well. I've seen a couple of studies, and I don't know if they really correlate or not, and I don't know if you put any thought to it, but one is a study that shows that the soil composition, maybe within the next 50 years, will mirror or be similar to that of the last ice age, and it will take up to 200 years for it to return to what we now call normal. And this is supposedly going to lead to massive food insecurity due to industrial and corporate farming, and they're, you know, unless they change very quickly and adapt to that soil composition. Plus, there's another study saying that median income around the world is going up, which is good news, but also food insecurity is already going up, yeah. you know, simultaneously. And it's been going up in the United States the since the 90s. Do you think we're in the beginning, starting to see the beginnings of that soil composition analysis? I, you know, I don't know. I, I, what I know is that, that, and I write about this in Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight at some length, there's a whole chapter about it, that when America was first settled by Europeans who were keeping records of what we had and where it was and all that kind of stuff, what we found was that the soil in the Midwest was eight to 10 feet deep. Uh, it takes a tree 100 years to make an inch of soil. Um, trees make soil, they break up the rock with their roots. And soil is you know, filled with organic matter. It was eight to 10 feet deep. Average topsoil now in the Midwest is three inches to a foot, depending on where you go. And what has happened is that agriculture, you know, plowing basically, you know, plow until agriculture, you know, combined with industrial chemical agriculture, but just plow until agriculture is a starting point, exposed a lot of that soil in a way, you know, to the elements in a way that the living things in it couldn't survive. And the soil basically has died. And so it's no longer soil, it's dirt. And so the question is, how long does it take dirt to return to soil? And there's some, you know, there's some good news there. There's some, some amazing stuff that they're doing down in, uh, in Costa Rica. In fact, Louise and I were down there. We were filming this uh, last year for this climate change documentary where they're using organic, basically organic farming practices to revitalize soil that has been destroyed. And it, it's, it works quite well. It's just, it doesn't comport with the Monsanto's business model. Dave, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with your calls here on the Tom Hartman program, the place where despair is not an option. Genevieve in Seattle listening on KBCS. Hey, Genevieve, what's up? Hello there. Hi. I would uh, say, yes, despair is not an option, so let's get active. I would just like to point out, it would be great for more arborists and naturalists to call in. Tree roots, by and large, grow sideways, to put it in layman's terms. So one has great control in one's yard or, or hood to help sustain trees by mulching and watering. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with the sword ferns. The sword ferns are all healthy in my garden because I keep them watered and so are all of my trees. So when there's good snowpack and our reservoirs aren't running dry, it's a good time to water your trees because they are dying in the northwest. You can see, if you see 
dead leaves on at the crown of a tree in the summer, it's dead. It, yeah. The rest might be green, but it's going out. So I would just like to say that we got misled by um, marketing folks into calling air pollution greenhouse gases. And then it's called science. And then it's knocked off as liberal stuff. So I would just think that a return to air pollution, water pollution, and toxins would benefit our discussion. Yeah, simpl simplify you know, the terms. Dumb, dumb it down. Just, you know, if we're dumb enough to vote Trump in, we must be pretty dumb. <laughs> yeah, we, so we, would, we need a digestible. We got rerouted with these fancy words. Yeah. Well, the good, the good news, Genevieve, is that we did not actually vote Trump in. He lost by three million votes. It's just a, it was the, the quirk of the, of the Electoral College. But <laughs> nice I'm curious, over 80 percent of Oregon right now is in drought conditions. I um, understand. A, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering how it is in Washington state. And I'm wondering if that might be what's killing the ferns. I do think so, and that's why I say that my ferns are fine. They're watered by me. Right. And so I do think that our park systems, they water the grass uh, like it's going out of style, and they fail to water the trees, and we should just reroute our mentality. Uh, the insects actually will be less aggressive on our crops if they can hang out in our trees and shrubs and hedgerows. Mm -hmm. So we just need to maintain our natural understories, which is the ferns and other things that grow all year long and the trees are you know integral in their root system and the mycorrhizae connect them all and just trying to water the surface you know as deep as you can but you can help a tree oh mainly please people remove the grass from around the roots of the trees because it is taking the water from your tree and aiding the demise they're competing i assumed that the grass would hold the soil no, and hold the moisture not. in the soil no Huh. No, mulch, leaves, uh, ferns, uh, which is what's, what's Which is what you naturally see in a forest around trees. You see the mulch. Oh, you see no grass. Right. You don't see right. grass. You see mulch. You see, you see lots of pine needles, and it's soft and spongy and delicious actual soil with worms in it. Yep. So bring your compost out, put it in, and feed the worms. There you go. And yeah. Paul Stamets has done amazing stuff on mycorrhiza, by the way. It's absolutely extraordinary stuff. Yeah. So Genevieve. YouTube. Uh, YouTube. Yeah, there you go. Genevieve, Thank thanks you. for the call. And thanks for listening to KBCS. It's great talking with you. One other thing I wanted to share with you here before we wrap up the show. The Political Economy Research Institute, this is a new think tank. And they just released a paper titled, How Do We Pay For It? And uh, it was, you know, in the context of Medicare for All. And what they found is that if we went to a Medicare for All system in the United States, if we did that today, over the next 10 years, we would save $5.1 trillion. Seriously, so $5.1 trillion. So the question shouldn't be, how do we pay for Medicare for all? But how do we pay for the current system that we have that's costing us an extra $5.1 trillion every decade? That's a half a trillion dollars a year that we're just handing off to the health insurance billionaires and multimillionaires so that they can buy another mansion someplace in, in Switzerland. In fact, uh, you know, there, there have been a, you know, a number of uh, great documentaries over the years that chronicle the homes of the rich and famous, only they're all the executives, the chief executives and the senior executives of companies like Aetna and United Healthcare and Blue Cross and whatnot. And you know, they've got a, a multi-million dollar mansion in Malibu, and they've got a multi-million dollar mansion on the coast of Australia, and they've got a multi-million dollar mansion in 
the southern France, and on and on. How can we afford not to do something about this? Marie in Cortland, New York. Hey, Marie, what's on your mind today? Well, happy to get to talk with you, and I'll try to be quick. Um, we've been talking about building soil, and we've been talking about, you haven't really talked about it today, but you know about blue carbon and replanting trees and how important those things are for combating climate change. But one thing that troubles me, and maybe I'm just ignorant about this, but I have not seen any of that mentioned in the Green New Deal. And it seems like we, we ought to at least be talking about public works programs to reforest areas and to clean up and restore coastal and freshwater wetlands for the blue carbon. Can you say anything about that? I absolutely agree with you, Marie, and I think that that's a great idea. And, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt's idea was you don't give people welfare. You give them a job that there is a certain level of dignity and quality of life and sense of purpose that's associated with having employment. And so, you know, that's why he started the WPA. And, and the WPA was in response to an environmental crisis, the Dust Bowl. Exactly. You know, and the Dust Bowl was the consequence of bad agricultural practices and stripping out all the trees from much of the southern Midwest. And so what they did is they went through and, and planted trees along, you know, around all the farms. And in, you know now those trees are in the neighborhood of 100 years old, and they're large, and they look like they've been there forever. But those were planted in the 30s by these guys who were, you know, over a million people, as I recall. Over, I think it was mostly men at the time. More than a million people who were out there planting trees. So yeah, spot on, Marie. We need a new WPA and, and make it part of the new Green Deal. It's a great suggestion. I'll bring it up uh, with any Democratic politician I get on the next time I can. Marie, thanks for the suggestion. It's great to hear from you. A lot going on in the world here that we need to be keeping track of, we need to be up on, we need to know how to talk back to the voices of, of great wealth and pollution who want to despoil our planet for profit. And that's my mission, is to share that information with you. I hope it's useful, so get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.